Well, it's another week of church from our homes, our cars, our offices, wherever it is that you might be listening to this sermon from. And obviously, we hope that what we've been doing these past few weeks has been serving you well. And I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get a little more used to this temporary way of doing things. The first Sunday was a blur. Last Sunday was difficult. But today does feel a bit more normal. And I hope that's the case for you, too. I pray that you're making the best use of this time, that we're caring for you properly, and that you're making good adjustments to get through this season. However, in another sense, I still hope that none of us is getting too used to this. And of course, we still ask you to pray that we'll be back together at Prairie View soon. Now, last Sunday, we read a lot of scripture. We read Jesus' words to his disciples about receiving children and becoming like children to enter the kingdom of God. We saw the disciples upset that someone was working miracles in Jesus' name without their approval. We read Jesus' radical words about drowning being a better fate than leading one of his disciples into sin. We read his shocking command to cut off your arm or cut off your leg or gouge out your eye if they lead you into sin. We read Jesus' teaching on the sensitive and controversial topic of divorce. We saw him give his command to the rich young man to sell everything he owned, give to the poor, and follow him. And we saw Jesus' words about the particularly dangerous temptations that come along with material wealth. Now, of course, that could be several sermons on its own, and they have been in the past. But we crammed it into one last week, and we summarized it like this. Kingdom people, people who have been forgiven by God the Father, justified by Jesus the Son, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Kingdom people are called to have kingdom attitudes, and kingdom people are called to live kingdom lives. We're talking about attitudes like humility, service, dependence upon God, a vigilance against sin, and a pursuit of holiness. And these attitudes are to be lived out in all areas of life, including some of the most practical areas, areas like our marriages, how we spend our money, and how we view and manage our wealth. So if you put that all together, last week may have felt like drinking from a fire hose. But this week will be a little bit lighter, at least in terms of quantity. Last week we covered 48 verses, spanning two chapters. But today we'll focus on just 13 verses from Mark chapter 10. But don't be mistaken. Just because we're reading fewer verses this week doesn't mean the content of these verses isn't massive. Really, in just these 13 verses, we read some of the most bedrock truths of our entire Christian faith. These verses tell us a great deal about who Jesus is, what he has done, and how we as believers are called and empowered to live in response. So we'll start in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Of course, I'd encourage you to follow along from wherever you are. But before we begin reading, let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this time and your word. Uh, one thing I've learned over the past couple of weeks is how much my personal spiritual devotion really rested on routine and pattern. And when that routine and when that pattern was taken away from me, suddenly, um, all of a sudden, I felt like I was suffering spiritually. I, I really felt like I took some steps back. And maybe that's the case for all of us. Uh, maybe our routines and our patterns and our typical ways of doing things have been thrown into disarray, and, and maybe that's left us frustrated or confused or whatever other emotion this situation may have brought about. Uh, but Father, I pray that as these past few weeks have gone on, that we've learned to adjust. Uh, I pray that you've given us a greater sense of peace, uh, given us a greater sense of comfort with this new way of doing things. Uh, and Father, I also pray that we've learned to rely on you more uh, these past few weeks. Uh, when things change, when unexpected challenges arise, it can be disorienting, it can be humbling. And in a sense, that can be a good thing because it forces us to refocus our eyes and our minds and our hearts on what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it. And I pray that that has led to us looking to you a little bit more and relying on you a little bit more uh, as we make these adjustments. And Father, thank you for this time in your word uh, that has stayed the same. Uh, even though the weeks have come and gone and even though so many things have changed, once a week, if not more, we can still spend time in your word. We can still read your word together, in a sense. Uh, we can still get teaching from your word, whether it's from a sermon or devotions or other resources that we've been sending out or other resources that people have shared with us. Uh, Father, thank you for these opportunities to be in your word. Uh, I pray that these opportunities would center us and anchor us down in your truth, uh, even as we face uncertain future. Uh, Father, I pray that we would look to you as our shelter, that we would trust you to get us through this, uh, and that, Father, we would come out on the other end stronger, more mature, more humbled, more reliant upon you, and more joyful uh, in the truth that we are your children. Father, again, thank you for this time in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for this time we have to worship you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we'll start by reading Mark chapter 10 in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, in just the first few words of verse 32, the tension is already building in the story. Why are the disciples so amazed and afraid as they follow Jesus on the next leg of their journey? Well, it's just one word. Jerusalem. The disciples know what Jesus has predicted will happen there. 
He's told them two separate times in chapters 8 and 9 that he will suffer, be rejected, and be killed. So as these 13 men walk along the road to Jerusalem, Jesus is leading them to his own execution and his own funeral. But then as if the tension isn't already high enough as it is, Jesus once again tells the disciples exactly what's coming. And he does it in even more graphically gruesome detail than he did the first two times. For example, the first use of the word delivered in verse 33 hints at betrayal. That just increases the intrigue of what will happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. The word Gentiles in that same verse can only refer to the Romans, who were notoriously cruel in the ancient world. And then Jesus adds details like mocked, spit on, and flogged. He will die a shameful death in the eyes of all who are watching. And once again, Jesus does explicitly predict his resurrection. But once again, the disciples don't appear to grasp it at all. But we continue in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Have the disciples learned nothing in their time with Jesus? The fact that James and John asked Jesus for positions of worldly power clearly shows that the prediction that we just read, the prediction that they just heard, went in one ear and out the other. The disciples are incredibly inconsistent in that one minute they're amazed and afraid about the suffering, rejection, and death that Jesus will soon experience in Jerusalem. But then the next minute... They're worrying about seating arrangements around his worldly throne. This also shows that the disciples didn't learn the lesson Jesus taught them back in chapter 9. Think back to verses 33 through 37 of Mark 9. The disciples were bickering about who was the greatest. And Jesus taught them not to concern themselves with coming first in the eyes of the world. And yet here, James and John are jockeying for position in the worldly kingdom that they imagine Jesus is going to bring about. In chapter 9, Jesus told the disciples that to enter the kingdom of God, you must approach it like a child. Humbly recognizing your need for Jesus' blessing 
understanding that you have nothing to bring to the table. Well, James and John approach Jesus like children, all right, but more like spoiled brats. To make James and John look even more pathetic, other gospel writers note that their mommy was there making this request for them. So Jesus warns them that they have no idea what they're asking because they obviously don't understand what's coming. But even then, James and John insist that they are up to the challenge. Now, ultimately, Jesus' words would prove to be true. James and John would one day experience the kind of suffering that Jesus is about to endure. In Acts chapter 12, long after Jesus' death and resurrection, we read that James is beheaded for his faith by the wicked Herod. John ended up living a very long time, but not without his own suffering, exiled to the far-off island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. They would drink the cup of suffering, and they would be baptized with suffering. But not yet. Now, it is easy to throw James and John under the bus. But, you know, the other ten disciples don't come out of this smelling like roses either. Their anger and their jealousy of James and John exposes that really, deep down, they're all thinking the same way. The other ten just didn't have the guts or the audacity to say it out loud. So all 12 disciples are guilty of the same error. All of them are clueless about what's really going to happen to Jesus when they get to Jerusalem. And all 12 of them have failed to learn the lessons that Jesus has taught them on the way. But now we read in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You know, after all the failure. We've seen on the part of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, we would likely have abandoned them by now. But Jesus doesn't do that. He once again patiently and lovingly corrects them. Jesus' correction is pretty simple Don't be like the rulers of this world. Don't think the way they think. Don't talk the way they talk. Don't live the way they live. As he said last week, you are kingdom people, not worldly people. So act like it. Worldly people are all too often about the typical expressions and exercises of worldly power that we're all familiar with, that we're sometimes tempted with ourselves. All too often, those in positions of worldly power love to flex their muscles throw their weight around, and use their influence to dominate, exploit, and abuse those under their leadership, sometimes to the point of crushing them. But Jesus says that it shall not be so among 
you. May it not be so among us. Instead of all that stuff, Jesus calls his disciples to something different, something better. Jesus calls his followers to choose service rather than being seduced by raw power. Because as Jesus has already said multiple times in chapters 9 and 10, if you want to be great by kingdom standards, be small by the world standards. Chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Chapter 10, verse 31, he said, But many who are last will be first, and the first last. So summing up what we've read so far, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, Jesus is going to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed, condemned to death at the hands of the Gentiles, mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed, and after three days rise. In verses 35 through 41, the disciples are still fighting about who will have the most power in this new worldly kingdom they've imagined. And then in verses 42 through 44, Jesus reminds them yet again that his kingdom doesn't operate by worldly standards. And neither should they. If you want to be first in his kingdom, you must be last in the eyes of the world. Now, we could stop right there, and that would give us plenty to think about. But that's only 12 verses, and I promised that we would read 13. And this 13th and final verse is the best one of this entire passage. One of the most important verses in the entire Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's just a few words, but there are astounding and glorious lessons in this verse. There are truths here that serve as the very foundation of our faith. When Jesus tells his followers that whoever would be great must be a servant He's not asking us to do anything that he himself hasn't already done. And on a far greater scale than we could ever hope to accomplish. Many people look to John chapter 13, the passage where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, as the most stunning example of his humility and service. And don't get me wrong, that is a wonderful act. But the greatest example of Jesus' humble service isn't washing some stinky feet. It's dying for sins on a rugged cross. There is no better example of the first being last than the eternal Son of God being crucified. The cross is where Jesus truly, fully, perfectly exemplifies Humble service. It's on the cross where Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Jesus does exactly what Isaiah says in verse 5. 
On the cross, he is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And ultimately, it's by his wounds that we are healed. It's through his suffering, death, and resurrection that sinners like us, the last, become first. The word translated for in verse 45, as in the phrase for many, is the word anti, as in antichrist. Anti can also be translated as instead of. Christ gave his life on the cross as a ransom for many. He died for sins instead of or in the place of all who believe in him. That word ransom is extremely important as well. A ransom is a price paid by someone to someone for someone. A deliverer pays the ransom to a slave trader for the slave's freedom. A parent pays the ransom to a kidnapper for their child's life. A buyer pays a kind of ransom to a seller in order to acquire property. Jesus the Son gave up his life to save us from God's righteous wrath against our sin. In that sense, our ransom has been paid. And we are now free to love, obey, and serve God as his children. To do what we were created to do from the beginning. The Apostle Paul gets at this idea of ransom when he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 that we were bought with a price. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we read that we were ransomed. From the sinful ways of those who came before us, not with silver and not with gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And finally, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we read that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain, has ransomed sinners from every tribe, language, people, and nation. By his blood. So in just one verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we learn a great deal about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for the many who believe in him. He didn't just do this for James and John. He didn't just do it for the other failing disciples in this story. He didn't do it just for his fellow Jews. Jesus did this for the many who believe in him. Past, present, and future. Not just people who look like us. Not just people who sound like us. But for all who call upon his name. This is what Christ has accomplished for me and for you. And this is also the example that Christ has set for all of us believers to follow. Paul gets at this idea of following Christ's example in Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, follow Jesus' example. Believers in Jesus are called to take up our own crosses, like we read in chapter 8. To humbly serve others by putting their interests ahead of our own. That's because Jesus humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as our ransom. The first became last, in order that the last... Sinners like you and me might become first. Jesus is our Savior, and he is our Lord, and he is our example. His service to us doesn't just save us. It motivates us to serve those around us. Now as we close, a few more thoughts from our passage. In the week ahead, think of Jesus' patience. With these disciples. We mentioned that he didn't abandon them when they repeatedly fell short. Even though people like us may have fired them a long time ago. That displays the immense grace that Christ has for those he has called to follow him. And that ought to be an incredible encouragement to us when we fail. Which we will. It ought to be a challenge in how we treat those around us when they fail. Which they will. In addition, I'd encourage you to consider what it looks like for you to follow Jesus' example of humble service in your own life. What does Christ-like service look like in your home, your neighborhood, your school, or your work? To put an even finer point on it, what does it look like for you to be a humble Christ-like servant? in our current situation of a global pandemic. And then finally, this passage reminds us to look to Christ as our Savior and our Lord, but also to look to him as our example. Now, it's important that we strike the right balance here, because Jesus is far more than just an example of humility and service. He's the Son of God. So if you think that Jesus is nothing more than an example of humble service, then you're missing the full truth about who he is. 
But he's also not less than an example. And we Christians are called to follow in his footsteps. We don't strive to be humble servants by our own strength in hopes that Christ will save us. We strive to be humble servants with the Holy Spirit's strength in response to the glorious truth that Christ already has saved us. Now, as we said, it was only 13 verses, but it's a lot to take in. Jesus' ultimate act of service was in going to Jerusalem and giving up his life as a ransom for many in order that our sins might be forgiven through his broken body and shed blood on the cross. And the most appropriate response for believers, really the only response for believers, is to follow his example by humbly serving those around us. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life for us. The first became last, so that the last might become first. So now that we have been saved by him, may we follow his example and give our lives in service to others. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the incredible assurance that it gives us. The reminder that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for our sins. That's something that we've probably heard for a long time if we've been in churches. It's something Christians have been talking about in Sunday schools and small groups and Sunday mornings for generations. But it's something that we Christians, no matter how long we followed Christ, no matter how much time we spend in churches, no matter how well we know the Bible... Mark 10.45 is a good verse to constantly keep in front of our eyes, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. But on top of that, this verse, this passage is also a challenge to follow Christ's example, to be humble servants ourselves, to put others' interests ahead of our own, to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us and enable us to put the interests of others ahead of our own. To not be driven by selfish conceit or ambition. To serve others as Christ has served us. Lord, I pray that we would do that this week. And I pray that as we do that, ultimately you would be glorified. That those around us would see our good works and not glorify us, but they would see our good works and glorify you that our acts of service could be a means of pointing them to you, the one who gave his life as a ransom for our sins. So, Lord, again, thank you for the encouragement, the assurance from this passage, but thank you also for the challenge. I pray that with your help, we would obey your words and follow Christ's example in the week ahead. We love you, we praise you, we honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.